Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that brings you news that hits home and then apologises to the home for hitting it while rubbing a very sore fist because punching bricks is painful and stupid. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week as Home Secretary and the world's least impressive ice sculpture, Pretty Patel, denies claims that MI5 distrust her, I'd argue that for an agency who specialise in counterintelligence, they really should, as countering intelligence is very much Patel's skill set. Much like every occasion where the Home Secretary is wheeled out to remind us she exists, it's been a pretty awful week. The UK's new immigration rules have been announced and once again the government keeps presenting the idea that we have the best country in the world while insisting that no one should ever be allowed to come and see it. Surely if it's that good a place we should be welcoming everyone to pop by and have a look so we can boast. But no, it seems instead we're far keener to deter visitors as the place is in a state and it's everyone else's fault for not cleaning it up. And why and why should you want to come over here and clean it up and take that job away from a British person who also doesn't want to clean it up? The system will be points-based, as what could be more British than points meaning prizes, and the prize being ultimately disappointing, as by winning you gain access to a country that doesn't trust you for wanting to be there. To gain points you have to be able to speak English, presumably because large parts of the country can't thanks to cuts to education, and they could really do with the help. Another way to gain points is to have a job with an appropriate skill level, as apparently jobs like waiting tables aren't highly skilled, even though my own past experience as a waiter meant I needed maths knowledge, a good memory, an ability not to shout fuck off at paying customers even when I really wanted to, and a vast array of ways to say sorry your food isn't here yet without revealing that the chef has once again nearly stabbed someone for peeling a prawn rock. Compare that with, for example, Home Secretary, a job that you can seemingly get despite being forced to resign from your previous role for breaching national security, and where you can't even tell the difference between terrorism and counter-terrorism, despite that confusion potentially leading to giving a lot of money to ISIS in order for them to arrest various members of the police force. How will firms make up for the loss in staff of those supposedly unskilled jobs? Well, Patel says that they're just going to have to train up British people as there are 8 million economically inactive people in this country who could do it. Great idea. Let's get all the economically inactive people who are too sick to work to fill in all those jobs in the agriculture industry. No fruit pickers left? Well, why not launch those with limited movement at trees and hedges and the impact should knock off all the ripe ones? 
Ah, but who will actually scoop them up? Well, how about a big net weighed down at either end by someone in a coma, and then you can just roll them up when you're done and move on to the next prop. 22% of all economically inactive people uh, are unable to work as they are carers for other family members. So why not move them and those they care for into the hospitality industry and they can be paid minimum wage for helping to feed and bathe their loved ones while charging the person being cared for at full cost as if they were at a really shit spa or hotel. 27% of economically inactive people are students, which is very unhelpful as if they keep studying they'll learn skills and therefore become unable to do unskilled work. But wait, hang on one goddamn minute. Pretty Patel has said firms will need to train the economically inactive to do unskilled jobs. But if they're unskilled, what are they being trained in? Are these people going to turn up and be told to unlearn things? Perhaps spend hours staring at a wall or trying their best to get a test wrong? What if they have amazing plate-carrying abilities? Will an official trainer be available in order to swap things out of their hand or break all their fingers? It's also the oddest sort of xenophobia when you tell a nation that only those who can take the best jobs will be able to come over. But don't worry, this government will make sure all the toilet cleaning is left only for really British people. None of this is new, of course, as immigration rules are already strict in the UK, with the main change being that freedom of movement for EU citizens will now be gone. The Home Secretary said that these new measures will ensure that EU and non-EU citizens coming over will be treated equally, which is great because now they can all feel equivalently unwelcome, and if that isn't progression, then I don't know what is. I don't like these immigration policies at all, and yet after Pretty Patel admitted that controls like this wouldn't have allowed her own parents into the country, I wish that they could have been in existence for a couple of very specific weeks in the 1960s. Many businesses and services like the NHS and Carework will undoubtedly suffer with staffing issues. But on the plus side, with high skills and a need to speak English being a must-have for entry to the UK, at least Donald Trump won't be able to do any state visits for a while. This is what people voted for, right? You know, to take control of the borders we already had control over. And, of course, for blue passports, which will be introduced from March, because nothing says the dawn of spring like the colour of midwinter. Holding a new blue passport like a hygiene inspector might display some rat droppings it's found in the kitchen, Pretty Patel continued her hollow displays of importance by declaring that the passport will once again be entwined with our national identity which must obviously be that of a country endlessly suffering from blue-blue depression. And that was the theme of the week, having the Home Secretary do various pointless interviews to promote why no one could come to the UK to work, even though it's fine for her to conduct secret meetings while on holidays. In between questions on immigration policies, Patel expertly gave perfectly unskilled, useless answers to other key questions about government failings, insisting that the Home Office was right to deport supposed serious offenders to Jamaica, despite several of them only having minor offences for drugs. Patel stated that there is no such thing as dabbling in drugs, which means that either her colleagues, the Prime Minister, and the only person if he'd existed at the time, his very being would have disproved Darwin's theory of evolution, Boris Johnson, and congealed cup of soup for a face and chancellor of the duchy michael gove either they're full-blown criminals and should also be deported or they took drugs so badly that it was the sort of unskilled level british people should be trained in and anyone better at it isn't allowed in at the annual make you aware your old awards sorry the brits rapper dave added a verse to his new track black in which he called the prime minister racist Patel defended Boris and said that he definitely isn't a racist and that it's wrong to make judgments about individuals when you don't know them. Unless, of course, they're from another country. Right, Pretty? While Pretty Patel was convincing everyone she wanted to keep foreign nationals out of the country, it seems she's also been trying to deport the most senior civil servant in the Home Office to another department. 
Sources told the Times newspaper because the greatest trick a paper ever pulled was a paywall to convince you anything behind it was worth reading. They told the Times that Patel had been belittling and bullying officials, which should make sense as then those Home Office staff could claim to really relate to all the people they were mistreating, as they've now got shared experiences. Another source said that MI5 had withheld information from the Home Secretary as they didn't trust her. Could that be because she thinks counterintelligence is intelligence and actually it's counterintelligence that needs to be countered? But hang on, if MI5 were holding back information from the Home Secretary, how would she know? Or is she getting tip-offs from all the foreign officials she illegally meets while on holiday? I mean, why would MI5 trust her when Patel lost her job as International Development Secretary because she kept having unauthorised meetings with Israeli officials when she was meant to be on holiday? If your main job is to keep the country safe, why risk an unwarranted attack on Britain from a bunch of holiday reps or Disney characters as Pretty yelled out national security details on a family trip while going round the teacups? MI5 have denied these rumours, but then it is their job to deny things, isn't it? And the government have also, of course, denied all these allegations, and the Prime Minister has said that he has full confidence in the Home Secretary, but that might be because he also had his access to state secrets withdrawn as Foreign Secretary, because everyone was certain he'd end up writing them on a toilet wall, while definitely not dabbling with cocaine. I say the Prime Minister said he had full confidence in Patel, but that was just what a spokesperson said, as at the time of recording, Boris Johnson hasn't actually been seen in public for nine days. You might think that this is the first time he's ever actually done anything good for the country by just hiding and avoiding it. But there has been outrage at his lack of appearance at any of the heavily flooded parts of the UK after weeks and weeks of extensive rainfall. Though after seeing his attempts with a mop prior to the election, it's really not certain he'd be of any help if he did visit. Sure, his sandbag-like appearance could mean five or six actual sandbags could be used elsewhere, but at the same time, his overall density in the water would likely just cause levels to rise more. Environment Secretary and Constantine and Bradley Walsh, George Eustace, just keeps saying that the PM is engaged with this issue, though I'm certain it's more that the phone is purposefully off the hook while Johnson is somewhere warm and dry. A number 10 spokesperson said Johnson was staying away from the floods to avoid distracting from a response, which is quite the admittance that when he's somewhere, nothing gets done. It also feels like the sort of nothing excuse that you'd give when the real reason is that he tried to hump some furniture again, got his penis stuck and is currently recovering. We all know that Johnson loves to don an outfit and some wellies as you couldn't go a minute on the election campaign without him holding some sausages or driving a digger. But apparently when it's not election time and the situation is that people are actually suffering, it's much harder to persuade the Prime Minister that a visit would be like a big boy's trip to Kidzania. Though in some ways his lack of response to devastating downpours is clever as it makes Patel, despite her weak, look almost caring. I mean, no longer is she pushing for draconian border controls. Instead, she's trying to stop people travelling all the way here just to drown in the floods. How thoughtful. And lastly, over in Labourville, the final round of voting for the opposition leadership has started, with results not due till April because nothing says typical Labour Party quite like providing results long after they were needed. Cartoon train whistle Keir Starmer is still the frontrunner according to polls and he's been adamant that party unity is needed, saying that Labour members need to stop taking lumps out of each other, which will instantly put off any surgeons in the membership from voting for him. Supporters of Starmer say they back him as he'd get the media on side as he's sensible and moderate and wears a suit and looks like he's made of cardboard and newspapers are also made of trees so maybe they'd feel affinity. Today, though, the tabloids have been criticising him because he said the most exciting thing he's done is go to football with his kids. So sorry, everyone. Try again. Saying that, maybe doing any sort of parenting and looking after your kids is seen as radical and alternative when we have a prime minister who doesn't see his. Maybe that's why Keir is a threat. Ah, if only Starmer had said the most exciting thing he'd ever done was not dabbling in cocaine while trying to rut a chaise long. Silly man. 
And the government insists again that they are well prepared to deal with the coronavirus, which must be why the Prime Minister stayed indoors for nine days straight. Yeah, Paul Paul Broads, I hope you're faring well. And again, uh, if any of you are in flooded areas or know someone who is, my deepest, most heartfelt sympathies is I have no idea how you're coping. Um, I mean, it's been another weekend indoors at DEB HQ as we have no one to turn our daughter into a makeshift kite. But while it means she hasn't blown down the street uh, and she hasn't been soaked through, it does mean she's been bouncing off the walls indoors, gradually getting more and more pale and developing night vision. Um, there appears to be no or little to no indoor things for children under the age of four near us, uh, except for one soft play that's the size of a 50p and has the smallest ball pit area for tiny children and all the big kids like to use that bit as well so every time my daughter goes there she just returns with some sort of bruise and an obscure virus uh, but my complaints are very minimal and i'm aware lots of people now have a river in their town center which is awful um unless you know there's meant to be a river there i don't want anyone to think i'm anti-river for no reason i'm just against ones that turn up and forcefully occupy the land which i suppose doesn't stray too far from my political views um though really i should be a fan of anything that takes down the banks oh, that's quite complicated i do hope it all gets sorted very soon but then it's climate change isn't it so it's more likely that we as a species evolve gills and just take to riding dolphins to work of course i'm being very silly uh, there won't be any dolphins left by then Oh, I bet you're glad the inane waffle bit is back, aren't you? And thank you for the nice comments about last week's show, and I'm very glad you enjoyed the chat with Jeremy Gilbert. Incidentally, I have been listening to Michael Moore's Rumble podcast recently, and the episode last week with political scientist uh, Rachel Bittercofer um, about what the Democrats need to do to beat Trump was fascinating, but also contained a lot of similar points um, as Jeremy raised. So uh, it's a very worthwhile listen. Um, quite nice to hear that there's similar issues across the pond uh, that nobody's addressing. Um, and I'll pop a link into the pod blurb. Uh, even though Michael Moore really doesn't need me doing his publicity. I mean, if he wants to pay me for it, that'll be fine, uh, but I think he's doing okay. Um, speaking of which, my new tactic of getting my young PR specialist to plug reviewing or donating to the show last week didn't work at all, uh, with a podcast review website kindly emailing me to say, you have no new reviews. Thanks, pal. Way to make a guy feel loved. Uh, but I've been talking to my PR guru about how to really get the message home, so hopefully this week uh, she should incentivise you to review, donate, or share. Okay, I'm going to get you to try this again. It's got to be better than last week, okay? Let's say, Yeah, it's very good. Can you say, please review the show? <laughs> and donate to the podcast? <laughs> I mean, that wasn't anything. That, that didn't sound like it at all. Can you donate to the Kofi? Donate to Kofi. Donate to the Patreon. Please donate to the Patreon. I mean, that was okay. Can you say, tell people about the show? Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, coffee. Yeah, that's fine. Do you want a coffee? Don't all rush to review or donate to the show at once now. Uh, no, actually, no, do, do do that. Uh, I mean, seriously, by donating to the show, you've done things like, I've bought a pop shield. I finally bought a pop shield for my microphone, which is why I can say things like pop, 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 popcorn. It doesn't make your eardrums burst. I mean, it probably still does. But you turn the volume down. It's an easy way to avoid that. But you probably could have done that from the beginning. I could have saved that money, bought a coffee. God, you're the worst. Uh, but yeah, uh, any donations help. <laughs> 
Um, the only other bit of admin for this week's show is that the kids' politics show, How Does This Politics Thing Work Then?, uh, which I go on about most weeks. I, I talk about it all the time. I'm not going to tell you any more about it. Um, it's at the British Library this Sunday, March the 1st, which is very exciting. Um, I can't remember what time it starts, but it's in the afternoon at some point. So look it up, bring your kids, and then let's go look at really, really old books, and then I'll sneeze, and then they'll break, and I'll never be allowed back. Um, oh, and I was going to do the Edinburgh Fringe this year for the first time in ages, but instead, something else has come through that will be taking up my summer, so I'm going to let you know more about that in future weeks. On this week's show, I am speaking to Helen Milner at the brilliant, brilliant Good Things Foundation, uh, all about digital inclusion. Plus, there is a new section called Who's to Blame? Uh, And this week, it's all about floods. Yeah, who is it? You've nailed it. It's Indra, the Hindu god of rain, but also war. And I don't know about you, but I'm pleased he's just gone for rain this time, as it's too slippy to fight out there. Yes, sirree. Oh, sorry, I've ruined that whole middle bit for you now, haven't I? Sorry, everyone. Really must stop doing that. I can't really imagine a life without the internet, but if I could, I presume it would be one where I actually went outside, breathed the air, coughed a lot because I live in a city and the air here is terrible, and then went back inside, all the while not calling someone I've never met before something offensive while hiding behind a picture I drew of some anime. I mean, without being online, you wouldn't hear this podcast and then you'd potentially spend this whole hour reading something enlightening or enjoyable, or maybe even remembering that your children exist. Boris? Who can say? In today's world, being online has become necessary for so many elements of everyday life, from work communications and applying for jobs, to doctor's appointments, banking, applying for benefits, registering to vote, getting directions, venting your racist viewpoints through an anonymous account that looks like it's a cute dog, or watching Paris Hilton make a disgusting lasagna. And you there, with your Google Glass, Zoom MP3 player and Blackberry, you probably can't imagine being without it, but... In the UK, more than 5 million people have never used the internet and 11.3 million people don't have the skills that they need to do so. If your experience of social media is like mine, you might be surprised to hear people need skills to be online. But having internet access is a privilege. And if you haven't grown up with the resources or teaching to use it, it can be a very, very intimidating place. Which then, of course, makes it harder to use and gain access to all those areas of life that you now need the internet for. And that can lead to a greater risk of health problems because you can't use your GP's online services or Google to accidentally witness a whole load of grim pictures of people with ailments far worse than yours and then be terrified into seeing a doctor. It can also lead to increased loneliness and social exclusion too. So while notions of free broadband for everyone would help a bit, despite it being laughed at by people saying, but I like to pay extortion amounts of money for a service that breaks down every two minutes, it's also about what's known as digital inclusion. This was a big part of the government's digital strategy bill from 2017, which promised to increase funding for digital skills training, but also to deliver free Wi-Fi for all libraries in England, a cost that they've managed to counterbalance by closing most of the libraries. But a report in 2019 from the Science and Technology Committee said that the bill had lost momentum and the government needed to readdress its approach. So, until it does, how do we ensure everyone is digitally included so we can reduce divisions by all agreeing as a nation that Paris Hilton really can't make a lasagna? A few weeks ago, I spoke to Helen Milner, Chief Executive at the Good Things Foundation, a wonderful social change charity that aims to help people improve their lives through digital and social inclusion. I met Helen at an event back in January and the story she told me about the work they do and the community partners they work with made me immediately ask her if I could get her as a guest on this show to talk about what I think is a rarely spoken of element of inequality in the UK. I asked Helen all about what effect it has on people's lives if they don't have digital skills, all the things the Good Things Foundation does to tackle this issue, and if everywhere is like my underfunded local library and has free Wi-Fi but is only staffed on a Thursday between some magical time that doesn't exist in our dimension. 
have a listen. And if after listening, you run or work at a small business or community centre that can help, please do get in touch with Helen and her team. Here's Helen. Hi, Helen. Thanks so much uh, for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I really wanted you actually just to start by telling me why you started the Good Things Foundation and what it does. So um, I don't know if you can believe this, but 20 years ago was when I first started working in digital inclusion. And the, back then, uh, that was the, it was, uh, the government had a program called UK Online. And uh, only a third of the UK population had ever used the internet. And the government thought that it was all about access, that people needed places to go where they could use computers. Um, and that once they had a place to go and access to broadband, then they would be fine and they'd all, everyone would just use the internet. So a, a network of places where people could go, libraries, you know, shops, training providers, schools, community centres was funded. Um, and uh, I uh, then took over the running of that. Um, and but very quickly, um, I became aware that actually it wasn't really about access. So the people who most needed to use the internet were the people who were least likely to be able to do it without some support. Um, so then it's really about making sure that people have the support that they need that in informal and friendly places, um, but also that they understand the benefits that the internet can bring. So then I spun out Good Things Foundation as an independent charity uh, just over eight years ago, um, which is absolutely the best thing I've ever done. Um, and created this amazing charity that we've got in Sheffield now. That's amazing. And I'm guessing over 20 years, the support that people need has changed, but I I guess also they need more of it now? Well, I'd say yes and no, because the the work that we do is very much about helping those people who need the help. So, you know, your millennials with their smartphones who go to university, that they don't come and need help. They don't ask for help. So it's still very much about people who um, are normally poorer, um, people who haven't got any qualifications or don't have many qualifications, um, and older people as well. So it, it's still very much those people because they're the ones that need the hand-holding to understand how the internet can benefit them, but also how to use it. So you're right, I mean, that... 20 years ago, probably 15 years ago, there wasn't the plethora of easy to use free email systems even. You know, the email systems uh, 20 years ago were really hard to use and really clunky. Um, so there's uh, the, the tools that people are using have, have become a lot more intuitive, but actually, fundamentally, it's about people need help from other people who they trust to use the internet to do the things that they really need. Like if you're unemployed, you you need to get a job. Um, If you're lonely and isolated, you need connection with other people. If you don't have much money, you know, you can save loads of money by being on the internet. So I think it's about absolutely honing in on the people for whom the internet isn't just about when's the next bus coming um, and what's the weather going to be. It's actually real fundamental life-changing things that they need to do. Is there quite a discrepancy then between the things that you need to use the internet for, but then being able to get access to to do those things? You know, because as you say, a lot of the things you just mentioned are are really necessary to get by in life in 2020. Um, But if you can't access those things, that's that's got to make life quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest change, let's say, over the last 10 years, that there's become increasingly 
many more things, both from the public sector, from government, but also from commercial sector, that you can't do if you're not on the internet. Um, that we know, for example, that uh, the rollout of universal credit from the government for people claiming benefits, that half of everybody who, have com- who has completed an online claim for universal credit had help. So half of those people needed help. So obviously, if you're claiming benefits, then you're more likely to have less education and to have um, a sporadic work history, so not have had a lot of support from an employer. Um, so you're much more likely to... Um, to Yeah, so the government services have increasingly gone online um, and, you know, things like banking has increasingly gone online as well. And what's... Uh, you, you mentioned sort of uh, generational issues uh, previously, which is one that I suppose I'm most familiar with, having to... You know, I've, I've had to teach my nan how to use an iPad in the past. Um, but but what's stopping kind of people of, of younger ages um, understanding how to use the internet? Because is that now not part of schools? You know, I keep hearing how coding is now being introduced to schools and that elements of computing and things. So where are the kind of issues in stopping people benefiting from digital, perhaps with younger generations? Yeah. So in the UK, there's um, almost 12 million people who have never used the internet and they're separated out. Yeah, I know. It's a big number, isn't it? That's a lot. Yeah, a lot more than expected. Yeah. And that's separated out as so there's uh, just over 4 million people who have never used the internet and uh, 7.5 million who are what we call limited users. So you asked me about the younger generation, and they typically would fall into the limited user category. So when we talk about limited users, they either use the internet infrequently or they're using it daily, but they're not using very many services, websites, or apps. Um, And that the likelihood that you're uh, not using the internet um, is is massively, it it just overlaps completely with social exclusion. So um, 71% of people who don't have any more than a secondary level education are likely to be digitally excluded, and people with a disability are more than twice as likely to be offline as those without one. And then around half of the people who are digitally excluded are from low-income households. So again, you asked me about um, younger people, but, but, you know, if you are in your 80s, and you're a woman, and you went to university, you're very, very likely to be an internet user. If you're in your 20s, and you didn't, and you don't have any GCSEs, for example, um, and you're living in a low-income household, you're very likely to be a limited user of the internet, not fully able to do the things that you need to do, like fill in complex forms like universal credit, or like use um, online banking, for example. The other thing is about... Um, the work that we've done. So we work with um, over 4,000 community organisations around the UK, and we're also in Australia and Kenya, etc., etc. Um, that, that, so the work that we do, um, we, we realise that um, we've discovered this thing called low learning confidence. Well, that's what we call it anyway. So that actually people who haven't done well at school um, don't believe they can learn anything new. So actually, it's not about having a smartphone in your pocket, it's what you do with it. But also, when you come up against something that you need to do, like fill in an online form, for example, you don't think that you can do it. So you haven't just not got the skills, but actually you don't have the 
belief in your ability to learn something new to say, well, I'll give it a go and I'll have a look around. Because that's probably what people like you and I do. We'll say, you know, I've never used a blog site before. Let's have a look. Let's have a search on the internet, see what I can find. Let's have a look on YouTube and then let's just give it a go. We don't say, oh, people like me don't do those sorts of things. We say, well, it's just the internet. Let's have a look around. I'm sure I can manage it. But we've discovered that people, particularly people who haven't done well at school, have, have don't have the confidence in their ability to actually learn something new. And that's really what's holding them back. It's their it's their confidence, it's their self-esteem, it's their their belief in their own ability. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating you saying that because I think most well all sorts of things from sort of DIY to, to you know everything else I, I Google and find a video for it to teach me how to do it. And I think if I didn't think of doing that in the first place there'd be a whole ton of stuff that I I wouldn't have any ability to do yeah that's right I think we you know that that I've been the sort of you know evangelist for people using the internet you know for a long time now um and I think that one of the things though that is is coming up is that as more people are getting online so globally uh, we've just passed half of the world's population are internet users so i mean that's a stunning fact as well so only just under half of the world's population have never used the internet before so what's that three and a half billion people still haven't used the internet but because we have three and a half billion people who have used the internet um of course there's going to be lots of criminals and lots of scams and things going on because it's just like the real world isn't it um and so we see that of the people who aren't using the internet things like being worried about their identity being taken or data privacy concerns are still really, really high. So more than 50% of people who have never used the internet are worried about data and the bad things that will happen to them on the internet. And so it's really important in our work that we're working with our community partners so up and down the country to make sure that we're encouraging people to use the internet because we can see how much it benefits them, you know, how they're saving money online, how they're being being able to get jobs, um, how they're connecting with friends and family, but actually that they need to also know how to keep safe. And that is something that's changed. So in many ways, that's changed a lot more in our work, I would say, than the fact that people have smartphones or tablets or, or that broadband's a lot more ubiquitous. And the community groups that you, you work with, um, how what are they doing to kind of help people uh, with their kind of internet abilities or their digital abilities? Because uh, one of the one of the things I was looking up when I was I was going to interview you um, was about the government uh, well digital strategy bill of 2017, which actually you emailed me about because I looked up the one of 2014. Well done, my research. Maybe I need some help. Um, and um, one of the things in that was talking about how we get more uh, libraries to help people with uh, digital abilities, but. You know, in the area I'm in, the library's access code only five days a week. There's nobody working there. So you have to be able to get into the building and then you haven't got anyone teaching you. So are these commu- the, the community groups that you're working with, are they actually actively kind of teaching people stuff? Yeah, yeah. So we have a network and, and uh, you can find out all about that on our website, the Good Things Foundation website, and that that network is in every community up and down the country. Some of them are libraries, so not all the libraries are like your local library. <laughs> thank, thank goodness for that, yeah. Yeah, they're also, you know, like the community centre, you know, one-off community centre run by that community or um, small local charities, for example, helping people look for work or helping people um, who have disabilities. 
Um, we've even got a fish and chip shop in Stockport and a coffee shop who do really, really fabulous work. And they all, they're all separate. They're all independent from us. I call it a big club with a shared vision. So we're all got this vision that we want the whole country to be able to use the internet and to be able to benefit from the internet um, and that they do their own thing so they know what that local community needs they know what the local people need um, what really joins them together is that they are all really friendly really informal provide loads of free help and support will really often tailor it to what you need so if you're looking for work then then you you can go there and they'll help you search for work and they'll help you they'll also encourage you to um you know to do other things you know like to understand um how to keep yourself safe and they can do that because we've got an online learning platform called learn my way um again which is free and on the internet anyone can use it um, and that's got uh, really simple courses designed for people who don't know how to use the internet and all of those things that they need. And we've done loads and loads of user research, loads of um, co-design with uh, people who don't know how to use the internet or people who are limited users and with our community partners. So th there's a core curriculum, if you like, but then there's these really, really wonderful, incredibly dedicated um, community workers you know, employees, volunteers who are there to help people just learn what it is that they need in the way that they need it. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Also, it sounds very effective doing it in, in a way like that, that can be kind of catered towards the, the, the people that are using it in the areas that they're in and, and what they need it for. That's right. And I think of it as being hyper-local. So each individual person, you know, gets what they want, but also scaled. So now in the last 10 years, we've helped over 3 million people um, to get the digital wow. skills that they need. So this is a scalable model as well, because what we're doing is we're, and working in a real partnership um, with those community organisations to make sure that we're providing them with the support that they need. Um, uh, you know, training for volunteers, Learn My Way, of course. We also provide about four to five million pounds of grants a year. Um, and we're able to do that because of our partnerships upwards with government departments, but also with large, um, large employers as well. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Um, and uh, how is it? The, let me work out how I ask this. Um, yeah, I mentioned the, the digital strategy bill, the government's digital strategy bill earlier. Um, have things progressed since the introduction of that bill in 2017? What are the areas that perhaps are missed that, that need to be looked at? So, you know, it's always a bit of this and a bit of that. You know, so, so yes, so things have improved. It's always wonderful when the government actually says digital inclusion is really important, digital skills are really important in a digital strategy, that it's not just about putting more pipes into the ground, it's not just about higher level skills. So that is is fantastic. And within the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, there is a there is there are teams of people who work on digital inclusion and work on digital skills. So that's a huge tick. Um, we work with a number of different de um, government departments. So we work with the Department for Education. Uh, we work with the um, NHS Digital now the NHS X. We work with um, HMRC. We've done some work with the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, and also we're doing some work with um, courts and tribunal service um, and, of course, with the Office of National Statistics. So we're helping them to roll out their online census. Um, so 
we work with lots of different government departments based on the different needs that they have so which is good I'm not saying that's a bad thing but (laughs) there isn't a recognition that when you know Boris Johnson said he's going to spend five billion on broadband infrastructure but actually there's no understanding that actually there's this infrastructure that we're running um, as a charity that we're supporting daily with a charity we're working with a lot of different um, funding partners to make that happen but actually it's a core infrastructure that the government could be funding um, as, as something that needs to be there not just next year but for the next 10 or 20 years because at the current rate so our research shows that the current rate of everything the government is already doing and also corporates um, that in 2028 there's still going to be almost 7 million people who are digitally excluded well that's that's a lot especially considering by by then so so much will be online and so many jobs will be online dependent yeah absolutely so you know we could say huge that's great that means there'll be a a reduction of 5 million people but that's just not good enough so our campaign so we have a campaign called bridging the digital divide calls for a 100% digitally included nation um, Britain um, and we have a six-point action plan to be able to deliver that. We've also got a cost of proposal, which you won't be surprised to know that we have actually um, sent to the government a few times um, of how to do this. And that isn't just for Good Things Foundation. This is all of us working together, corporates doing their piece, um, so that we can fix this. We know how to fix this, and we know that digital exclusion is holding us back as a country. So I think that's the bit that I'm disappointed in, is that... This is something that we actually know how to fix it and the investment that is put into the inclusion side of the strategy is just such a tiny, tiny amount if you compare it with things like infrastructure and building services and tools and apps for, say, the NHS. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. I will be back with Helen in a minute, but first... 
Who is to blame? Who got it wrong? Was it you? Cause if it was, I'll tell your mum. Yes, it's a new section. Who's to blame? That's all anyone wants to know anymore, right? Whose fault is it? Was it the EU or health tourists or Labour or all women? No, it was you again. You forgot to turn off your flamethrower before you left the house. Own that mistake. So in this bit, when it occurs, I'll be using my amazing skills of uh, researching things or just mainly using Google to bring you some definitive places that you can point your finger and we can all, as a very tribal side, say, you did it, you fucked this, and it's your fucking fault, you fucker. Most weeks, though, the answer will be the Conservative government is to blame, so consider this like a really crap episode of Columbo, where you know who did it right at the beginning, but the enjoyment will come from how I don't really manage to explain exactly how they did. While most of the political discourse over the last few years has been about how the UK has become flooded with immigrants or refugees or terrorism or Marxism or vegans, in reality, the UK has mostly been flooded with water. You know, classic OG flooding of the sort that's generally worse than any of your xenophobic fears, unless you're a Noah acolyte or Michael Phelps, who loves this sort of thing because he's already plotting how he'll rule as King of the Seas once all the ice caps melt. According to UK flooding stats from 2019, every year one in six homes in the UK are at risk of flooding, and statistically speaking you're more likely to get flooded than be burgled. But that could be because once all your possessions float out the door, burglars don't really need to enter your house to grab them anymore. The risk is becoming more and more frequent too, as the past few weeks have shown, and we've had constantly record-breaking months of rainfall, because it turns out rain is a competitive bastard, and if we could just get it to be interested in eating the most pies or growing its fingernails disgustingly long, then we'd be saved. So this week the question is, who's to blame for floods? And that is a seemingly easy one to answer, as obviously it's just climate change, or if you're a former UKIP councillor from Oxfordshire, gay marriage. But while you might think that you need to rush out and throw sandbags at happy wedding goers, demanding that they don't cry as that moisture would just return to the atmosphere and fill the clouds, it is, as ever, not as simple as that. I mean, it's also not that. Please don't do that. At the moment, the government spent £815 million a year on flooding and coastal erosion risk management. How much of that is spent on a photographer to take pictures of Boris Johnson pushing some water around in the run-up to an election? No idea, but they've saved that cash this time round anyway, and you might be surprised to know that spending on flood defences hasn't actually fallen under successive Conservative governments. And, in fact, after the floods all over the East Coast in 2013, they even raised it a little bit from what they were spending the year before. What you won't be surprised to know is that none of their funding raises have been high enough to reach the recommended levels of the 2007 floods review by Sir Michael Pitt, or all the analysis in recent years by the Environment Agency, and both warned that climate change would vastly increase the risks of parts of the UK becoming swimming pools. Perhaps that's how they should have sold it, really, wasn't it? As though flooding would cause a load of public swimming pools to suddenly happen, and then the Conservatives would work extra hard to shut those down. The last Labour government increased flood defences by 10% in 2008 to 9, after Pitt's report was released, and then another 10% the following year. But austerity meant from 2011 onwards, the coalition government cut it back to a yearly average of just a 1.2% increase. Parts of those cuts included environmental agency staff numbers, which dropped by over 2,000, and included staff who worked on specific one-off projects, such as, yes, well-done flood defence upgrades. They also included 274 areas having their flood defences postponed in 2011 in order to save money, because as you know, the weather was totally happy to be part of that all-in-this-together mantra that former Prime Minister and gelatin sculpture of a knee, David Cameron, kept wanging on about. I guess him and then-Chancellor and formaldehyde storage unit George Osborne thought why spend on floodways when they could persuade the British people that if they don't chant rain rain go away loud enough, then it's all their fault. 
This postponing of schemes is said to have had a direct effect on areas such as River Air in Leeds, which flooded in 2015, but was due to have flood defences upgraded until the government decided the best money saver would just be to let an area wash away so that no money would have to be spent on it ever again. The thing is, in more of telling you what you, a sensible person, already knows, spending money on flood defences actually saves money overall. For example, in 2015, Storm Desmond, you know, the one that messed people's hair up. Wow, that is a really old reference. I'm so old. That caused £1.6 billion in damages alone. But it would have caused £2.8 billion if Cumbria hadn't upgraded its flood defences after previous flooding. The Environment Agency estimates that for every £1 spent being proactive, another £9 is saved. These pounds if spent on drainage systems, tree planting, no-till farming, which is um, where you pay on your phone instead of a checkout. No. No, it's not. Uh, I'm such a city boy. Um, It's to do with farming that doesn't disturb the soil, so no scary films or ploughing the fields naked or something. Anyway, all these methods would reduce flooding. But thoughts need to also go into housing planning, as one in ten of all new homes that are constructed, if they are ever constructed, that is, are in a flood risk area. So either they need to be built with sustainable drainage systems or, I don't know, turned into a lifeboat or marketed as having an inbuilt aquarium. But wait, I hear you cry, isn't all of this actually the problem of the EU not allowing us to dredge anymore? Uh, no. EU laws on dredging came in in 2000 and allowed member states to have their own rules on managing watercourses. And that's watercourses as in where the water direction goes, not as in the water sort of stays up late at night and learns an extra language. But also it had specific rules on it not being allowed if dredging damaged certain habitats. But there's even exceptions to that rule when it came to flooding. So really lots of dredging should have been happening in the UK and the one thing that should be dredged up time and time again are all the stories about how the government haven't spent enough money on flooding and now there's flooding again. If anything, the UK government should look towards the Netherlands, who due to its low elevation have had flooding throughout history, but after severe floods in 1916 and 1953, developed a series of dams, water drainage, land reclamation, and in one case, swinging doors that can close a river mouth near the port of Rotterdam in case of emergency. The amount of major floods they've had since 1953? Zero. But they're still spending resources on keeping tabs on these defences and improving them where needed. So, who's to blame for the current flooding situation? Well, obviously, it's the weather for not complying with government spending cuts and all those gay marriages for not throwing salt instead of confetti. But apart from them, this is definitely a case of a lack of investment in prevention methods. This is a fixable thing, and with the climate getting ever more irate and storms getting ever more silly names, it'd be cheaper to do it than not. If Boris Johnson just for one minute fancied visiting one of the areas affected, he might notice just how bad things are and that everyone there is very much drowning, not waving. Storm Boris won't end up being a name for some extreme weather, but instead an instruction to armies of angry people rowing their way to Parliament after another many years of inaction. And now, back to Helen. So why, I mean, why aren't we doing it? It's such an easy question, isn't it? But what, what are the biggest hurdles in getting, you know, this to be a major issue in terms of government or on the news? You know, it's, it's apart from yourselves, I, it's not something I see come up in my kind of social news uh, timeline all the time. You know, it's, it's, it should, it sounds like it should be something that we're all talking about all the time in order to just make the UK, for example, a country that's kind of future proof. Yeah, I think that, so I I think there's a few reasons why it doesn't come up more often. Um, For me, the biggest one is that decision makers, and this is right across policy and and corporates as well, don't tend to hang out with people who don't know how to use the internet. 
yeah like we don't tend to hang out in community centers where there are people who don't own smartphones don't have computers have never used the internet don't have a job don't have any qualifications maybe have english as a second language that they're just not people that we're going to the pub with on a friday night yeah so that we that that however broad-minded and open-minded and evidence-based and policymakers are their daily reality tells them that this isn't true yeah so i was in a community center in south london so like london's one of the most digitally included places in the country i was in a community center in south london talking to 13 people who were in there getting support to use the internet and i asked them if any of them had a mobile phone three of them pulled their phones out of their pocket only one was a smartphone so it's 13 people only one of them had a smartphone i then asked them did they have a computer or a laptop and the internet at home and the same woman who had the smartphone also had a computer and the internet at home so of those 13 people in south london today only one of them had the internet at home and only one of them had a smartphone and that's not the reality that you or i or decision makers or policy makers particularly in the westminster bubble experience enough and understand that it's a real problem that's holding people back so that's number one, and I think that's by far the greatest thing. The second thing, for the people who do understand that it's a problem, think that with uh, interfaces becoming better, with broadband becoming cheaper, uh, with you know having fibre in the countryside, it's just going to solve itself. Yeah, and that you know, Good Things Foundation does get support, and and absolutely we do get an audience, we do get listened to, but actually, it's really you know, we feel like we're just kind of chipping away, that we help about 300,000 people a year and we could be helping 3 million people a year, you know, obviously with a lot more help from, from others. Um, so that the, you know, we get an audience, but that's not the same thing to actually radically changing the way that policy makers see this as the thing that is holding us back alongside everything else. I was listening to an interview with Lisa Nandy the other day and it wasn't her, it was the person interviewing her, said something about, oh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn promising free broadband for everybody. He said, where did that come from? Like, that's not an issue. Why did that come up? And actually it came up because there are people in this country, there's more than a million school-aged children who live in a house without the internet. So actually... I must admit, free broadband for everybody I thought was a bit of a stretch, but I do believe that there should be free broadband for the people who absolutely can't use it. If we've got more than a million people a year using food banks, they're probably going to prioritise food over the internet. And actually, that's not right when kids are being sent home to do their work, their homework on the internet. So actually, it's not that people aren't talking about it, it's just most people in Westminster don't know that these things are a reality. Yeah, it, it absolutely fascinates me every time I, I mean, I say every time, nearly every time I've gone on holiday in the last few years, I've gone to a country where there is free Wi-Fi absolutely everywhere that you go. <laughs> and it's brilliant. And it doesn't matter, you know, where you're staying or whatever, you can access it from your phone or your laptop. And it, and it always amazes me that I come home and then have worse reception and, and a much, you know, uh, lower ability to get online, which it's just fascinating. Yeah, I think that's right. The um, I was shown a photo the other day from actually one of the trustees of the charity of people queuing outside the GPs 
um, at sort of 7.30 in the morning in order to get uh, an appointment because the only other option is to go online to make those uh, GP appointments in that particular place. Um, and that uh, they um, that they were saying that it's not policy that you can only get a GP appointment online or in person. But of course, those people who um, were queuing outside that GP practice were doing so, obviously, I'm assuming because they weren't very well, but also because they didn't have the, the skills or the, or the ability, they didn't know how to do it. They might not have had a smartphone. They might have run out of data for the month. Um, so actually, that link uh, that that I wouldn't have known. I haven't seen people queuing outside the doctors, but actually, that's a reality that's happening um, right now. Um, and we do do quite a lot about of of work around health um, at Good Things Foundation. So we know that health inequalities account for more than five and a half billion pounds in healthcare costs to the NHS each year. Um, so that's about people who, um, uh, because of condi- their conditions, uh, unemployment, housing conditions, but also we know there's a postcode lottery about where you live, um, which is obviously uh, hugely related to poverty and wealth. Um, and so the work that we've been doing for the last three years uh, in a programme with the NHS, um, NHS Digital, um, called Widening Digital Participation. Um, and the work that we've done is sort of in two two parts. So the first part is what we call digital health literacy. So once we support people to learn how to use the internet for their health, so that's about looking up conditions, but it's also about learning how to do things like how to book a GP appointment or how to find a local um, NHS dentist. And so that's what, what we call digital health literacy. And then the other part, we've been doing a number of pathfinders. One of those um, was in Stoke around using Facebook to reach women who are not very likely to respond to letters um, suggesting that they come in for a, a checkup, just a routine checkup um, for the breast screen, um, screening clinic. And that path has Pathfinder has been so successful. Um, the NHS Digital are now training um, people in breast screening clinics up and down the country to, to reuse that model. But w- the other thing that we've found from those Pathfinders is that actually that the NHS typically is, they expect you to come to them. So people go to the NHS for their health rather than health going to the people. So we've created through the evidence that we found through our Pathfinders, the digital health hub model. Um, And we've now uh, scaled that to uh, 27 around the country. So these are places in your community. So they could be uh, in Nailsea, for example, which was one of the first ones, one of the first Pathfinders. Um, it's actually run by the council. It used to be a butcher shop. It's on the high street in Nailsea. And actually it's about come in, have a chat. You know, is there anything that you're worried about? Is there anything with your health? And then th- then they show people how to then look that up online. And we did that all through co-design with local people in Nailsea. Um, um, and then, but some of them actually are in, like there's one in um, uh, a hospital in northeast London, yeah, in a Costa coffee shop, actually. So that's about, it's about going to where the people are and talking to them about health and then supporting them 
to learn and understand how they can use digital to help them with their health. And it's also a huge agenda around prevention. I see that our real role, and this is our new digital health hub model, is about saying communities have such a huge role to play to help people to think about their health, to help people to understand what the internet can do for them, to understand the tools that are there before they get ill. So actually think about well-being and think about um, how they could maybe make lifestyle adjustments. But also the, the formal health sector is then interfacing with those health hubs. So you've got GPs coming out to the dementia cafe in the old people day centre. Yeah. So you've actually got you've got community nurses coming and talking to people about the support that they've got, but in the community centre, not in the GP practice. That's that's absolutely fantastic, and it just um, having it right there and having it where people are going to anyway just makes it seem a much less daunting experience. I know people that are still too scared of you know going for an appointment or arranging those things, and actually having it all right there makes it, it I, I don't know a much more approachable thing, which is fantastic. Um, I, I wanted to just ask as well, just as a sort of a, a wrap up, really. But um, how do how can listeners help if if listeners are in an area that there's very limited um, digital accessibility or ability? How how can they help? And if there's a community group that's listening, can they just get in touch with you if they want to become part of uh, working with the Good Things Foundation? Yeah, absolutely. So any community organisation who would like to be part of this big club with the shared vision, who kind of are inspired by this, or maybe already are doing some work and would love to do it with other people and, and find out about what, what other organisations are doing, can go to the Good Things Foundation website. And um, I would say go to the Contact Us page and um, uh, give us a call or send us an email. Um, you can also find a local centre. So if people want to find a local centre, so the community organisation wants to know if anyone locally is doing it, you can also do that on the website as well. Or give us a ring. We've got a team of people and that's their job. They're talking to community organisations all the time. And, uh, and and obviously Learn My Way as well. So Learn My Way is a free... So learnmyway.com is a free online learning portal. That There's loads of great courses on there. It's all designed for people who uh, can't use the internet or use it a little bit. Um, and, you know, there's great things on there. So, for example, about keeping safe online or, or simple things like how to put an attachment on an email. Um, and uh, it's all written in really easy language so that, um, you know, anyone who wants to use that can use that because that's absolutely free. And uh, lastly, a question that I ask uh, everyone that we have on this podcast, just apart from yourselves, um, which other campaigns or writers or commentators, wh- whoever really, um, would you recommend that listeners check out in regards to digital inclusion or other important efforts to improve social exclusion? Who, who are your go-to uh, people? Um, so the World Wide Web Foundation, you know, Tim Berners-Lee found, Lee's Foundation is doing a really great campaign around a contract for the web. Um, so that's about ownership and safety. Um, so, you know, I think that's really definitely worth looking up. Um, the other thing that we're involved with, and this is more if people are, are from businesses, is we're involved with something called Future.Now. Um, and Future.Now has been established by the previous Lord Mayor of the City of London and a group of other companies like BT and Lloyd's Banking Group, Accenture, etc., about what can businesses do because a lot of big 
um, businesses employ lots and lots of people. So actually, it's about them taking responsibility to help train those individuals. So I think that's definitely also really um, uh, worth um, worth looking looking up. Thanks so much to Helen uh, for that. You can find the Good Things Foundation at goodthingsfoundation.org or on Twitter at goodthingsfdn or on Facebook too. In particular, do look up their Bridging the Digital Divide campaign, which I'll link to in the pod blurb and learnmyway.com for anyone you might know who needs digital guidance. Helen is also on Twitter with her own account, uh, Helen Milner. Uh, and big thanks as well to Sam at Good Things Foundation for recording the call at their end so the sound was a lot clearer. You've been sending in some very great suggestions uh, for interviewees lately. Thank you for those. I'm still tracking a number of them down and will keep trying to do so. I mean, for interviews, I'm not like hunting them like some sort of bounty hunter. That would be awful and get in a lot of trouble. Um, I'm also really looking to talk to someone about the whole BBC situation and the importance of a state broadcaster. If any of you can think of anyone, uh, I'm really searching for it. Can't find anyone uh, particularly obvious to ask about that. Um, or if you can think of anyone else that might be useful to hear from in coming weeks, please drop me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could send me a message via the new British communications antenna on the International Space Station. And as your message is plotted incorrectly and completely misses the Earth, my great, 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 great grandchildren will get to see what it was when aliens upset at all the broadcasts about closing borders in space and some random recommendation for a person they've never heard of finally reach Earth and destroy it for the benefit of the universe. As always, probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thanks for using up your valuable life units listening to this. And if you've made it this far, then congrats. You are part of Team Finishers. No, it doesn't sound right. Still haven't got a name. Team Enders. Um, Well, as your reward for listening all the way through to the show this week... um, Well, as your reward for listening all the way through to the end this week, I'm going to bring you some more secret political facts that you never would have known otherwise. Okay, are you ready? These are some really secret ones. As part of environmental protection laws, former Justice Secretary Jack Straw isn't allowed in the sea. Wow, right? Bet you're glad you stuck with this show now, yeah? And if that sort of exclusive political fact is your cup of tea, then why not share that tea? Which is not something anyone who likes tea would actually do. But with this sound uh, tea that is this show... The sound tea, is that a thing? There's enough to go round, so uh, get your audio doilies out and tell people you know who like podcasts to like, listen and subscribe, review the show on your fave pod apps and throw me some money for actual tea because you can't drink a podcast, you idiot. Send that to the code for your Patreon. Thanks, big chunks to Acast for pod hosting, my brother the last sceptic for all the noises, to Cat Day for typing up the linear liner notes, and to Mushy Bees for all the art types. This will be back next week when Boris Johnson hasn't been seen or heard from in over two weeks, and eventually a supply prime minister is called in, and they seem much more fun than the real one, and they change all policies just being games and watching a video, and everyone hopes Johnson never comes back, but then he does because he ruins everything, but everyone always talks about that supply PM for the next ten years, as it was definitely the best week we ever had. Bye. This week's show was sponsored by Pretty Patel's training guide to becoming professionally unskilled. Do you have to do things in your workplace? Any things? Whether it's communicating with other humans, knowing how a system works, building a thing, cooking a thing, or just not constantly setting yourself on fire. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, buddy, you're too skilled for unskilled work, and that's not what Britain needs. With Pretty Patel's guide, you too can be as professionally unskilled as she is, with such tips as why not sit there like a useless lump, or page after page on how to mention the opposite to what you actually mean. 
Grab a copy now because why be economically inactive when you can really show your team that you've put the effort in to be purposefully shit for Britain. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 